This program contains strong language. All right, guys, this is Austin here with my good friend, Megan, and we're going to give you a little bit more insight about my life and hopefully the podcast. So do you have a question for me, Mego? I do. The question is, why did you create the podcast and what's your ultimate goal with it? Ah, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, but again, I just want to reemphasize like the main reason I did it is because I listened to a lot of business podcasts and I just feel like they weren't always talking to business owners and could have been helpful actually to them. And if I really wanted to keep making money, I would have kept doing what I was doing because I was making a lot more money doing that than I am a fucking podcast, to be honest. So (laughs) it's kind of hard for me to figure out. It's like, I really wanted to help people. So honestly, that's why I'm doing it. I mean, my ultimate goal was really to create a podcast where people would listen, hopefully hear these stories and get motivated. Maybe some of the people listening are already motivated, but hopefully they get some tactics out of it. So that's really what I wanted to do at first. And I knew it would take some time. The ultimate goal for me was to hopefully create some type of community around the podcast where people could interact and hopefully meet each other. So, I mean, when we're all listening to podcasts, we're doing it passively, right? We're either like mowing the lawn, taking a dump. I don't know, whatever. What do you do, Megan, when you're listening to a podcast? Uh, I actually was listening to podcasts this morning while I worked out. Yeah. So, I mean, again, yeah, we're all doing it like passively or like doing it while we're doing other stuff. And I just felt like, okay, it'd be kind of cool to actually connect with listeners. And that's been the hardest part. I mean, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but it's been fucking hard. I just want other people to be able to help each other out because by putting together all this information, I don't want to just keep putting out info. I think more and more over time, people are going to want some type of community, especially given what we're going through recently, right? (laughs) Or you're stuck and isolated. So it's like, Mm -hmm. over time, I know it's going to happen more and more because especially now more people are going to be used to working from home. So I'm like, you're going to want to connect with other people. And especially Mm -hmm. if you want to find other business owners. I mean, if you own a business right now and you have questions, like that's what I want to help with. And it's not just me. Like I just try to bring together people who know the shit. Like I never try to act like I know everything. So whether you need to be motivated to start your own business or if you have tactical questions or stuff, just join our Facebook group and honestly, hopefully can add some value. Or if you think you're smart and you know a lot about business, why don't you join the group too and then help other people out who have questions? So that's my next main step. That's the ultimate goal. And I knew it'd take time. And so trying to do that through the Facebook group, which you recently joined, right? <laughs> I did. Yeah. So hopefully these other people will uh, who are listening right now We'll join the group and hopefully connect with some others. We've been doing monthly meetings, Zoom calls with everybody. And that's been fun where everyone's been able to meet each other. And this is hopefully just another stepping stone because I'm not really a big Facebook guy. I used to be because Megan, I used to be pretty funny on there, but then everyone wanted to get political and all that shit. I just got rid of it for basically a year or two. But even coming out of this Facebook hiding, I'm doing it for you guys to create a group to hopefully connect <laughs> everybody. That's the kind of guy I am, Megan. Well, and you have been able to... Um actually like successfully network people on the zoom calls right yeah actually yeah so recently we had a lady who was talking about pr um, and she's actually helped a couple of different people on the podcast get pr for their business and someone who was a patreon member actually just started using her as a pr company and they've already started getting her pr so it's just like again those type of connections those people wouldn't have met if they didn't join the group or even jumped on the zoom call together so If y'all get a chance, I mean, it's free to join the Facebook group. So there's nothing to hold you back on that. And then hopefully if you become a Patreon, I'm trying to add even more value where we do video calls and eventually not just online stuff, but eventually do a meeting where we actually physically meet each other. So I'm trying to do stepping stones and it's kind of taken a lot longer than I thought it would, unfortunately. 
No, but you're doing a good job. Snaps for you. Thanks, Megan. You're welcome. All right. So if you're listening again, stop being passive. Join our Facebook group. So thanks, Megan, for asking the question. So I wanted to add a quick addendum to that call with Megan before we get started with this episode. So again, our monthly group calls are for Patreon members, and our next group call is going to be this Friday, May 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So hopefully you're listening to this podcast before that. But I'm going to give you guys who are on the fence about joining our membership through Patreon, I'm going to give you a special offer. Anyone who joins our Facebook group this week, I'm going to live stream our Patreon Zoom call this Friday to our Facebook group. So be sure to join our Facebook group before that if you want to see what our monthly calls are all about. You notice it didn't come out fluidly, but once we failed, meaning I lost over a million dollars in development costs, it really, you sit down and you go, what the fuck? What am I going to do? And you're like, well, you're really good at this one thing and you've made money doing it the entire time. Why don't you just do more of that? And you're like, yeah, okay. Hyperactive, on a lot of drugs, drinking every night, no parental guidance, genius, documented, not because I think that I am. And I'm just kind of going through the world like a wrecking ball. Miley Cyrus would be proud that I just used that. I wasn't the best Marine, so I wasn't going to be invited to stay any longer is probably the best way to put it. Potentially, there was one core mistake that I made in about two years into this. I stopped. Yeah, the hardest part about saying that is feeling like I lived a contradiction for most of my life. And I think if maybe there's one thing that people could take away from this is I went into deep depression. Hello, everyone. My name is Roger Bryan. I am an SEO consultant. My company is RC. Brian, B-R-Y-A-N.com. We also have an agency in fusion digital marketing. I am 42 years old and I am based in the Akron Canton area of Ohio, technically a small town called Jackson Township, but no one's ever heard of that. Yeah. So you're from there? I grew up in Cleveland, but I left when I was 17 to go in the military, spent five years in San Diego, came back, did my undergraduate in Cleveland for three years. And then I left and spent seven years in Washington, D.C. working. Technically started two companies out there. And then I sold both those companies in 2012 and was supposed to move to Austin. My buddy down there, Julian, had gotten me set up a nice place to live. We started making some friends. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get all my stuff put in storage. I'm going to move down there. But I'm going to go spend a couple of weeks with my parents up in Cleveland. Owned a small farm that I just sold a few months ago that my dad was living at. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna spend a week here, two weeks here. And four weeks in, I met my now wife and here I am. So she convinced you to stay up there? She never asked me to, but man, she was the one in a billion that was like, you just, you don't give that up, especially considering that we had waited until so much later in life. How old were you when you actually met her then? 42 now, so I've been 35, 34. Okay. So not too long ago. And so you said your company, RC Bryan Infusion, because I think you're having kind of a transformation as we're talking now with your brand. Is that right? Yeah. And really what it is, is that when you get back to your core principles of focusing in on your one thing, I had seen that over the last couple of years, I had started to get away from that. And it's every entrepreneur does it. I don't want to say that I'm a victim of shiny object syndrome because I've stayed in a marketing path my entire life. I've never really frayed from marketing in one sense or another. But when we really got down to it and what are we best in class at, it was really search engine optimization, 
for multi-location organizations, which are like franchises, healthcare organizations, nonprofits, and things like that. And I tried to go into the software space. I had come up with an algorithm that has driven our business for the better part of a decade. We'd built an internal tool that works like gangbusters, and we tried to make it a public-facing tool, and that's really what Infusion was. It was a software platform, and it took me down a rabbit hole that we could talk about for hours. If you want to hear a story about how to spend a million dollars and end up with nothing, let me know. Yeah, sounds good. Like I said, we'll probably spend the back half of the majority of this interview kind of talking about that. And it's Infusion, E-N-F-U-S-E-N. So I guess it's anyone's on their phone and they can Google it. Can you tell us like how much you made last year and like how many employees you have? Yeah, so last year our gross in that business is around 650000 What was really nice though is we maintained a 56% margin. So I had a pretty healthy net year for myself. There's 11 people on our team. There's myself, a campaign manager. We have two people on our team that actually work specifically in e-commerce business, which we can talk about. Six writers, two developers. And now you alluded to it, but you've refocused on, can you just specifically say what you're focused on now? So maybe if anyone's listening, they could reach out or at least we get a better idea of what you're doing today. And then we'll reel it back to how you got started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, search engine optimization. It's nice to have skills in a lot of different things. But definitely when you're forecasting a down economic cycle, making sure that you are focused in on the one thing that you can do better than most, never say better than all. And that for me and my team is search engine optimization, primarily for multi-location organizations. That's what I was making sure. So even when you talk about your branching out certain ways, I mean, I didn't even really think of SEO as like more specific niches. And again, you said like multi-location places sounds like in nonprofits. Is there anything else or even when the SEO realm, were you two spread out, I guess, within the SEO realm? And now you've kind of focused back in on these kind of niches? No, we've actually stayed pretty well focused in our niche. I think the software was really what pulled us outside of it. And we also did a three-year program with Microsoft that was more sales and marketing automation, which again, still in the marketing channel, search engine optimization generates the traffic, which generates the leads, and then marketing automation nurtures the relationship and sales automation helps close. I went down a three-year rabbit hole with Microsoft on that project. And then on the back end of that, went down a five-year hole with our software. So there was always an undertow of clients in the local search engine optimization space, but we weren't out selling it. We were selling Microsoft for three years, which is a full-time job plus, and then trying to get the software platform off the ground. And once it failed, it's hard for an entrepreneur sometimes to use that word. Right. Yeah. As we could hear. You notice it didn't come out fluidly, but once we failed, meaning I lost over a million dollars in development costs. It really, you sit down and you go, what the fuck? What am I going to do? And you're like, well, you're really good at this one thing and you've made money doing it the entire time. Why don't you just do more of that? And you're like, yeah, okay, good conversation. Let's get to that conversation there eventually. Do you want to just talk about maybe your first step in entrepreneurship? I mean, I don't know if that's coming out of college and where you went to college and then fast forward to try to learn from your mistakes here. We can go all the way back. So I actually got kicked out of eighth grade for selling smoke bombs and stink bombs. When I went into high school, like a lot of people, I grew up west side of Cleveland. I sold drugs. I went out on my own when I was 15 years old. My cousin and I had an apartment. We were both 15. And we made our money by selling pot to all the other high school kids, as well as some other things. But we'll just pretend like we only sold pot because that's a, people aren't as scared of that today as they might be of some of the other things. And I swear, that's a great lesson in entrepreneurship. You've got to learn how to buy in bulk. You've got to learn how to break it down into smaller pieces. You have to set up distribution networks. You have to have your own supply chain. You've got to have money management. And then you've got to try to not get high on your own supply, which is not as easy when you're a high school student. 
I graduated high school with a 1.1 grade point average. I went just enough to graduate where a lot of people that I know didn't even bother to do that. And luckily, I went into the military after that and kind of got my shit together. Why'd you go to the military? No exaggeration. I would say that out of eight kids that I graduated school with, three of them are dead. And one of them has just completely lost their mind. So that leaves four of us. Three of them went into public service and I went into entrepreneurship. The only way I was getting out was to actually get out. And for a poor kid from the west side of Cleveland, that was military or nothing. Why was there only eight kids graduating with you too? Well, my group of friends. I mean, my class had 500 kids in it, okay, but I but had nothing friends. to do okay, with most of them. Yeah. Even when you said you were 15 and you were living with your friend or cousin, whatever, selling drugs. So you were out of your parents' house at that point? Yep. Okay. Did you just tell them you're getting out or did you get kicked out or how'd that happen? I got kicked out. Okay. They didn't care where you went? Nope. Why is that? They were going through a divorce, dealing with their own problems and things like that. It took me about five years from that point to start talking to my mother again, but now we've got the greatest relationship in the world. What type of jobs did they have? My dad was always in the auto industry. So he worked as a manager at a mechanic shop and then as manager at a dispatch shop for a tow truck company. My mom worked kind of odd jobs. She was a homemaker while I was growing up, but then she worked at like a uniform place, a clothing store, a chocolate factory and things like that. Monetarily, that's what I was trying to point out too. It seemed like you had much money in the family either. Well, you know what? We were a good, stable, blue collar family until they got divorced and I went batshit crazy. How'd you go batshit crazy? I deserved to get kicked out. We were throwing parties every night, charging admission, bootlegging alcohol, selling drugs. At your parents' house? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like they would be happy to get you out then. Yep. Okay. That makes more sense. That's why I was wondering like, why they wouldn't have care if you're doing that at their house, why they didn't care, it seems like, right? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely both parties had part of it. Like, You can't control certain things when your kids get as bad as we got. Eventually, the Marines, they talked to you at high school and you decided that was the time? Yeah, I actually tried enlisting when I was 16 because I just wanted to get the F out of Ohio. And I went through and had all the paperwork ready. And then the sergeant was reviewing it and he looked at my date of birth. He's like, dude, can you walk out for a second? And I heard him start reaming the corporal that had brought me in. Like, did you ever ask this kid how old he was? Because they can get in a lot of trouble for talking to kids under a certain age. Right. So he's like, dude, you got to come back in a year and you have to graduate. And that's when I realized like, oh, I actually have to go to school and graduate to go do this. So you were in the Marines for four or five years? Five years. Okay. Did you get your stuff together when you were there? For the most part, still had my issues, but I excelled there at my job. And really the discipline that came from that, I realized that you couldn't really go through life doing whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted without repercussions. Notice I said without repercussions, because you can do that. It just, things don't work out too well for you when you do it. There are things we each look back on and think, how did I get it so wrong? They might be wearing multiple polo shirts and popping all those collars, donating to Coney 2012, or dating that one person that one time. You know the one. We're always going to get things wrong. That's just life. But there also are things that we can get right on the first try, like listening to this podcast or like shopping for life insurance. That's where Policy Genius comes in. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save 1500 bucks or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for free. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they also can help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. 
So even if you look back on your triple denim days in distress, you'll never be distressed about life insurance with Policy Genius. In just a few minutes, you can find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. We all get things wrong from time to time. At least we can get life insurance right with Policy Genius. So again, to get your next life insurance quote in just a few minutes, go to policygenius.com. That's uh, good distinguishment. You and I could do whatever we want. We could not work for the rest of our lives, but there's going to be repercussions if we don't have any money, right? Exactly. At this point in time, it seems like this might be the number one game changer, obviously, for you up to this point is just getting strict schedule. I mean, did you learn anything else while you were there? It seems like you might have done like a 180 as far as what you're going in as and maybe what you're coming out as, unless I'm just assuming something. No, you're not wrong. I think really what it was besides the discipline was a sense of future. There's a lot to be said, and there's a book that I recommend to everyone, Understanding the Poverty Mindset, and I might have had the title slightly wrong, I didn't even think that I should pull that up beforehand, that really talks about how there's a lack of sense of future in many people that grow up in less than ideal situations, and that lack of acknowledgement of a future usually dictates the actions that people live with today and the things that they do, and they're just trying to survive today, they make a lot of bad decisions about what's going to happen a week from now, a month from now it started to click while I was there. And I started to meet people from all over the world, really got to know my, the close guys in my squadron and started to see what the rest of the world was kind of like and kind of got outside of that west side of Cleveland bubble. I started to acknowledge more. And really when I got out of the military, I had this new sense of motivation that I could take what I'd learned from my previous entrepreneurial adventures my new sense of discipline. And it might not have been a cognizant decision, but I went and I went to get a degree, which most of my friends at that time didn't do since then, some of them have, and got a job, a good job that ended up turning into a career that ended up turning into a business. And it kind of snowballed because I tried and I tried because I had a new sense of the future. We'll talk about what you getting out of the Marines and going to college and everything. But I was just curious, where did the Marine Corps take you like geographically? What was interesting for me is there was only a handful, less than a dozen people in the Marines that did what I did. My MOS was 6423 for those that were in the Marines or in the Navy. They also have that job. It's a microcomputer avionics technician, so basically electrical engineering. I have this outrageous IQ on top of all of this. So ADD, hyperactive, on a lot of drugs, drinking every night, no parental guidance, genius, documented, not because I think that I am. And I'm just kind of going through the world like a wrecking ball. Miley Cyrus would be proud that I just used that. And getting focused in around some discipline and acknowledging that I needed to do something that was going to better prepare me for what's going to happen next kind of brought all those pieces together. Did you go to certain cities or you go overseas or whatever? Oh, with the see, sometimes I even lose the question, squirrel. I'm bringing you back, bro. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> I was non-deployable. So what I did in the Marines meant I wasn't be able to be deployed because there were so few of us. So there was like two or three of us at every air station in the Marine Corps. And when deployments happened, our job was typically done by the Navy. So I worked on the computer systems of Cobras, Hueys, which are both helicopters, A-10s, which is one of the most awesome aircrafts in the world, and C-130s. San Diego. Yeah, San Diego. That's what I was about to guess. Yeah, San Diego, Florida, Tennessee. Where in Florida? Pensacola. Yeah, I was about to name where some of the Navy bases are. I was going to say San Diego. I'm in Jacksonville. Jacksonville is a big Navy town too. You say in Tennessee. Okay. You said you want to get out of Ohio. So I'm just trying to get a feel of it. Like this is your first time out of Ohio. So you're seeing different geographies as well. So I imagine that's like opening up your mind to the world. Yeah. After basic training, they ask you like, where do you want to go? And I'm on the East Coast. I'm from the East Coast. I'm like West Coast. I just want to get as far away as possible. So then after the Marines, did you just get tired of that? 
No, I wasn't the best Marine. So I wasn't going to be invited to stay any longer is probably the best way to put it. But I managed to complete my tour and then went into undergrad. And this is where I got lucky. My dad, kind of on the side of his job, built classic cars. So he was building a 57 Chevy for the owner of an auto auction in Cleveland, Ohio. So I got out of the Marines, was a little bit lost. I stayed in California for a little bit, started selling flowers. That lasted about three months. When I say flowers, I was selling them by the truckload. So we we're importing them from Mexico and shipping them all over the country. I didn't know if that was a type of drug reference. Oh no, they were actual flowers like roses and shit. Yeah. That company just stopped paying me, which kind of sucked. So then I moved back to Cleveland, enrolled in school, and I got a job doing demo. And I did demo from July of 2001 up until September 11th of 2001. What's demo? Going into old apartments with a sledgehammer, knocking down oh, walls. Yeah, demolition. Okay, gotcha. Really using that electrical engineering degree that I had earned. Yeah. Then September 11th happened and got laid off the very next day. My dad got me a job at an auto auction as an inventory manager because they were opening up a brand new state-of-the-art facility. And that's when I met my first real mentor, an old Italian guy named Patrick Morcello. And he started to shape me from this smart kid with a desire to do something but not knowing what into like this sphere of business acumen and understanding. And over the next four years, I advanced all the way up to the general manager and was running his business for him. I still give him credit to this day. He's 83 now that he turned me into an entrepreneur that actually understands business and can function at the highest levels. So where did you work with him? And what was the new job? Were you getting paid by him to do something? Yeah, no, the name of the company is the Greater Cleveland Auto Auction. Okay. It's a 60-year-old auto auction, one of the oldest in the country. I started out as an inventory manager, then I went into sales, then I went into dealer sales, and then I went into bank sales. While I was doing that, I was doing his marketing and I started marketing for some of his nonprofit clients. And that's when I really started to get my feel for search engine optimization and paid traffic at the time. And I worked for him four years. I tripled his business during that time. This was a 50-year-old company when I came into it. And then over the next four years together, we tripled it. Then I got offered my own auto auction by another company with ownership. So leaving Pat in the Greater Cleveland Auto Auction wasn't necessarily an easy thing. And I think it caught him really off guard. We've got a good relationship now, but there was a couple of years there where we didn't talk. How much were you getting paid at the auto auction? When I left there, I was making $52,000 a year. And I was 24 because I told him I was leaving in April, even though I didn't leave till September. So 24, 25. So it was decent money back then. Yeah. Especially like coming out of Marine Corps. And maybe even if you think 10 years earlier, you're 14 and you said you're basically dealing drugs, right? And uh, apartment. And it seems like you're on the right projection because that's good money too for being 24 years old. Yep. You going to start your own auto auction? You said you could get some ownership. Could you just tell us like how that worked out? So right around this time, so you figure this is 2003, four, five. So 2003 and four, you start seeing a lot of online auto auctions coming up. So it's 2003, it's hard to believe that was 17 years ago, but people are just starting to sell cars at auction online. So this company called Copart, which is one of the largest auto auction companies in the world, started a program called VB2, Virtual Bidding Second Generation. So they took their primary software and they started sharing it with other organizations. And we were one of the first auctions to sign up. We were one of the first people to do our own auto auction on it. And it had a great deal of success. Our grand opening sale owners of a ton of other auto auctions came in from all over the country to watch us do our first sale. So you had the CEO of Copart, who's a billionaire, Willis Johnson, brilliant guy, great back-end story. 
do two seconds on him. When he got back from Vietnam, he pawned his wife's engagement ring to buy his first junkyard and turn that into a multi-billion dollar company. Just genius. And this group of auction owners from a company called Capital Auto Auction came in to watch this auction. And it was the spring of 2005. And within a month, they had me out to their headquarters in Washington, D.C. and were starting to court me to get me to come work for them. First, to help them get their online auto auctions up and running. And I'm like, well, I'm already doing that. Well, we'll pay you this much. I'm like, well, I don't really want to move. I'm like, what do you want? I'm like, I want my own auto auction. We're like, okay, we'll do that. So I was like, okay. So I up and moved to Washington, D.C. and started working with them. Did they just know what you did with Cleveland Auto Auction? And they knew you were the guy to kind of help them basically 3X their business? Yeah, what had happened was our paths had crossed a couple of years earlier and it hadn't even registered with me. When I was out doing my sales, I was selling the Salvation Army on bringing their donated cars to our auction. And at the time, they weren't taking donations in Ohio. And the primary reason was is that they only worked with Capital Auto Auction. So Capital Auto Auction covers most of the East Coast, Northeast from Virginia up through Maine. And they didn't have an auto auction in Ohio. So they had thought about opening one, but the competition in our market was fierce. There's three of them in Cleveland, three of them in Columbus, two of them in Akron. There's just so many auctions, there wasn't room for another one. And in order for me to get the Salvation Army business, I had to meet with one of the owners from Capital Auto Auction to walk through our plan, our logistics, and how we do everything. And they technically approved me to sell cars for the Salvation Army. So I had been on their radar. And when this DB2 came up and we were one of the first auctions to launch it, and they saw my name again, they decided they wanted me. So how did it work out when you moved to Washington and then you're saying had your own auction company? So I worked three days a week in DC and three days of work in Philadelphia. And I lived in Baltimore for about six months to get the hang of their business and everything. And then we went to Chicago and laid the groundwork to open up an auto auction. And we went from zero to a million in 90 days. So we had a million dollars in sales in under 90 days. It looked like everything was going to be a huge success. I was flying out to Chicago on Monday morning. I was flying back on Thursday evening. We were selling all of our cars online. We were starting to expand our towing. We were doing 100 cars a week. Then Copart decides that they're no longer going to share VB2 with anyone outside of their organization because although we were being hugely successful, at that time, Capital Auto Auction had the number one, two, four, and five auctions in the country on that software. The other 50 auctions that had signed up were just a catastrophe. We were a shining star. The logistics of running it nationwide with all the other auctions was a disaster. So Copart pulled the plug. So within 24 hours, right around the 90-day point, we went from celebrating making a million dollars to going, you know what? We have no software to run our company because the entire software, accounting, everything was built into it. And they had no interest in continuing it. They just they closed the entire department inside their organization. So that business collapsed overnight. Unfortunately, like two weeks later, our general manager had a heart attack and died. So we decided that we weren't going to fight it. I came back to Washington, D.C., let it go. That was kind of my first failure. It'd be wrong to say it wasn't my fault because I didn't even think of having a safety net. Here I am, 26 now, got a million-dollar business. I own 20%, coming from where I came from. I'm living the dream and didn't know that you need to be thinking about like what's going to happen if this happens. You just were going full steam ahead. And so I came back to D.C. I kind of came back in. We looked, we found some other software. It took a while. We implemented it on our core auctions, which were in Maryland, DC, Philadelphia, and up near Boston. Got those up and running. But while we were doing that, I kind of fell back into the employee role, which just wasn't going to work for me. All of this happened in like a year. So it was a very, very hectic year. 
So I started thinking about what I was going to do next. And that led to my biggest business success that I had. Which was? We started a company called National Charity Services. So if you go all the way back to the Greater Cleveland Auto Auction, I was doing marketing for nonprofit organizations just so that I could get more cars at the auction. So I went to my partners at the auction company and I'm like, hey, the auction didn't work out, but I have this idea. I want to go out to all of our clients, take your Rolodex, and I want to do marketing for them to get them more cars. And in turn, they'll pay me for doing that and it'll give you more cars at your auctions. The main partner was like, no, let's just concentrate on our core business. I mean, he was practicing his one thing. But the second partner was like, you know what? Let's give this a try. What can you do with Goodwill in Greater Washington? So I was able to take in short time, Goodwill from about 10 to 12 cars a week up to 100 cars a week in about four months, mostly through paid traffic. And then that spread from Goodwill in Washington to Philadelphia to Boston. And now all of a sudden, Chicago, Charlotte, places that we don't even have auctions. So we're starting to build a network of auctions to sell the cars. Now we're starting to do it for the Red Cross. Now we're starting to do it for the Salvation Army and some other small nonprofits. And it just started to grow like wildfire. And that's a seven-year process. And there's a lot of trials and tribulations in that, including one day where I walked in and fired my entire staff, right when we were around $700,000 a year in income, because I was just sick of everyone and had to rebuild my staff from scratch. There's a lot of different points that we can dive in on that seven-year journey from an idea to selling a company that's doing three and a half million dollars a year. Can you just tell me the difference between what you were doing with Capital Auto Auction and then I think I understand the software that you're talking about that you couldn't use it anymore. So that business sounded like it just went to shit and it was done with. But you having the idea on what you're doing with this national charity services, because that was the name of the company, I guess, that you started working with after the Capital Auto Auction. Yeah, that's the company that I started. Okay. Can you make it as simple as possible, like what the differences were, what you're doing before and then going in and what you're doing afterwards? Because you're throwing out a lot of like thrift store names and stuff and me trying to wrap my head around how you're making money with nonprofits is just hard for me to understand. Yeah. So let's start with that. Most people don't understand that the car donation industry in the United States is a billion dollar a year industry. You probably at one point in time heard an advertisement, whether it be on the radio, television, Reddit and print, you probably don't see them online unless you're actually searching for that. It's a little bit less now, but about a billion dollars a year in donated cars are done every year. So someone calls up Goodwill Industries and says, hey, I've got a car I want to donate. Goodwill, I'm doing air quotes, sends a tow truck to pick up the car. The car's taken to auction. It's titled. It's sold. The proceeds are collected. The auction takes its cut. My company, National Charity Services, took its cut for getting the donation. And then the rest of the proceeds are sent to Goodwill Industries. For example. When I walked into Goodwill of Chicago to close them, here is my sales pitch. You're going to spend no money. We're going to triple the number of car donations you're going to get. We're going to pay for all of the advertising and you're going to handle no phone calls, no logistics, no titling. You're just going to get a check every week. Oh, and by the way, here's the last six weeks of checks that I've sent Goodwill Industries of Greater Washington and every single weekly check has been over $50,000 a week. Do you want me to start sending you $50,000 a week? Sure. And then we would launch a website in their market. We'd launch Google AdWords, Bing advertising, and then they'd start to roll into the mix of our search engine optimization program. I had a call center. We took the phone calls for the donations. We coordinated with tow truck companies all over the country to pick the vehicles up, have them taken to auction. We coordinated with the auctions to have them titled and sold. Then all the proceeds were sent to us. We processed all the federal tax paperwork, and then we sent out checks to the nonprofits. They did nothing but open an envelope once a week. So this is with the donation industry. And thank you for simplifying this. I just want to make the transition again. When you're doing the auto auction stuff before, that wasn't anything to do with car donations, right? 
No, it was because car donations sell cars and my marketing brought them more cars. So that marketing skill that I developed in the car donation space specifically was what grew these auto auctions. But I was doing it typically as their employee. So their clients were getting the benefit, the auction was getting the benefit, and I was getting a salary up until I started my own company. Okay. Not that I ever watch this, but I've seen this come up on TV where they have auto auctions of like a 1930s car where it might be for a couple hundred grand, but those are just like high-end different types of auto auctions. Yeah, it's the exact same thing, except their inventory is high-end, like Barrett-Jackson. Right. Our inventory was typically off-lease, repossession, donation, and then dealer-to-dealer cars. Okay. See, that's funny. When I talk to all different types of entrepreneurs, I see auto auction and that's what I have in my mind. And maybe other people probably do too. But I don't even think of they have different auto auctions if there's going to be the high end market versus a low end market. And it just helps me understand. And I think the listeners understand the broad point of view of industries and just not labeling one thing and having a visualization. I mean, there's so many different aspects of even an auto auction like we're talking about here. Oh, absolutely. There's probably 350 auto auctions in the country, not counting the salvage auctions, which would add another 120. Oh, yeah. So even salvage auction where you're auctioning off parts of a car that probably like got totaled or something like that is what you're saying? Yeah. They're usually insurance clean cars selling the whole car, which is what Copart does. All right. So it made sense what you said with the Goodwill. And again, making that transition back to you decided to start this company in 2006, the National Charity Services. And now it makes more sense why it's called National Charity Services and what you're doing here. But out of the auto auction company that didn't work because of the software platform, was leased to you or have ownership, after they took it back, you decided to do this national charity services again, right? Correct. Okay. And then from there, when you're going into, let's say Goodwill, Washington, or one of these stores, your very first one, let's say, how much money did you have even when you started up? Because you're the one saying you're going to front the money and bring them more cars for their charity. How much money did you have? And just for us to get a mindset of your age at that point. 26, 27, I borrowed $6,500 from my partners in order to get things going, but they had the Rolodex. So they already had all the clients and it was an easy sell that we're going to get you more cars. I had a basic idea of what I was going to do, but $6,500 sure wasn't going to cut it. And we ended up putting more money into the project within the first year. But we went from zero to like 240,000 in the first six months. So it's kind of like, you know what, this is going to work. Let's set up an office. Let's start hiring some staff. And the next year it was $750,000 in revenue. And it's like, okay, this is working, but the system's kind of broken and I've got problems with the staff. I didn't build the team right and was having a lot of internal conflict. So you know what, let's blow this up and start over. And then the next year, 1.8, then 2.3, then 3.6, then you know what, it's time to sell. You said you own 20% of that company while you're doing it. Were you the guy in charge or what was your role versus the other guys who actually put the money in? I did everything. And that was one of my biggest professional mistakes was thinking that 20% of this was going to be okay. Now, when it's an idea and you need to borrow money to get it off the ground and you're like, oh, I'm going to own 20% and you come from a background of never owning anything. This is a great idea. A few years later, when it's a multi-million dollar business and you're writing those disbursement checks to people that do absolutely nothing and haven't put a penny into the business in years, and if anything, are more of a headache than they are a help, I actually sold my shares to them to get out of that business. So when you're saying you sold the firm, it's just for you to get out. Mm -hmm. I think we totally understand that. That's the reason I was making the emphasis when you own 20%, it sounds like you're doing a lot here. For anyone who's getting started, how would you have redone it now knowing what you know? It's hard because I would easily say, don't give up the ship just to start the business. 
But at the same time, had I gone to them and say, I want 50%, I know the number one partner would have said no, and it would have never happened. So I didn't really have a negotiation option there, but you do have to keep in your mind about what position you're putting yourself in. If you've got a revolutionary product that's developed that you got sales traction on, but you need to raise money, there's a hundred other ways than giving away 80% of your business just to get started. Seems like it makes a lot of sense. But here again, these guys, when they have the Rolodex, that's what you really needed at the end of the it day, is. right? That was the money there. And I guess even coming in, looking from outsider's perspective, you're still in your mid-20s. There's a lot for you to learn, as you alluded to, maybe a couple of years later, having to fire a lot of people to start over. But Not a lot of people, everyone. But it's still a good experience, even if it was just 20% at first, because you probably didn't visualize that it would get this big, it would seem like. No, I don't think anybody did. No one had an idea that this was going to be a seven-figure business, let alone a mid-seven-figure business that was scaling. Were you doing the same thing for those auto auctions? You alluded to as well that you're making individual kind of SEO sites for certain markets, and that's how you're able to get these car donations in? What we had finally done, and this is where the multi-location search engine optimization starts, is that we launched like a national Goodwill car donation website with all of the different locations that we serve listed on there. And it still ranks number one. I stopped working on that site in 2012. And it still today is growing traffic exponentially every year um, and ranking number one for all the core terms. And now they have just about every Goodwill in the United States as a client. So if I Googled what? Goodwill car donation. Car donation. Yeah. The only thing that might come up above you might be your local Goodwill. All right. And so what's the name of their website? Goodwillcardonation.org. And it came up number one for me. It might be just goodwilldonation. Well, I can at least see the site. I mean, as you know, especially with SEO now, depends kind of where you are and whatnot. If we type in something similar or whatever, and then now Google has all the ads up there up front, up top. I can tell that is a good search term because I mean, I see four ads right at the top, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a $35 cost per click keyword. Yeah. But it's crazy that how big the industry was. You're saying a billion dollars, basically? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I would never have known or thought that. Because why were people even donating the cars in the first place? There's really two primary reasons. The first one is, is that you would assume it's for tax purposes, but the tax benefits aren't that great these days. There was a yeah. big change to that years ago. The other thing is, if you've got a piece of junk in your driveway and scrap prices are low, you call it Goodwill or one of these companies and it just goes away. I'm feeling you on that. It's like you just want to finally clean out your garage and you've just been waiting and now it's time just to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So that was 2006 when you started. You want to walk us through numerically how revenues were going, but any turning points in this part of your journey where you're saying you fired most of the people? That was a couple of years in. Why don't you walk us through that? Really what had happened was is that I had hired anyone that I possibly could to do anything and no one had really specialized and we weren't a professional team. And I'm not going to say that you need a college degree to be a professional. But when you're in a growing business that has a lot of paperwork and federal government filing responsibilities, you do need a certain level of discipline and intelligence in order to do certain things. And again, it's not about hiring people with degrees, but I went in and got rid of all of the people that I had from people answering the phones to the people doing the paperwork. I will say this, the one girl that did title work for us ended up coming back a couple of days later because she had friends and family that worked at the auction and she was good at her job. But I hired an office manager with a lot of experience. I hired a marketer with a lot of experience. And then I hired a general manager who didn't really have a lot of experience, was fresh out of college, but was eager and hungry. And I put them in place to actually build a management team that would start to build the team under them in order to make it so I'm not working 120 hours a week. And I wasn't thinking in my head, I don't want to work 120 hours a week. I was just thinking that this isn't working. I can't get all of this done and still be doing sales and still be running campaigns. 
And it was the best decision I ever made. We had to go sideways for a couple months, but once they were in place and we built the team a year later, we were growing at 50% again. Other than that, was there any other hiccups in this particular business? Yeah, I mean, I almost feel funny saying not really. Man, it was a well-oiled machine. And at the core of it was it had an amazing offer. Even as an agency owner and selling services today, I'm always trying to sell people. And I'm always trying to figure out what they actually want. That product was a no-brainer. I mean, zero risk, exponential growth, proven case study time and time again, and a logistics system that was second to none. No one said no to us. And in that entire six and a half, seven year span, we only lost one client. And that was because I fired them because we just couldn't generate results for them. How about personally? I mean, it seemed like everything was going well, at least financially. And you're saying how much you're working. You're still in Washington this whole time as well? Yes. Did you have any friends? I did. It was really interesting. One of the guys that I went to high school with that was a grade below me had moved out there to go to school. And we had randomly been connected by another friend. And then we started hanging out. Then one of the guys that he went to college with came. Then I moved in with a roommate who had a huge group of friends. So I had an awesome group of friends there. It took about a year and a half of me being there to really start to get my legs under that. I mean, Washington, D.C., as a 20-something with a ton of money, is a great place to live for bars, restaurants, clubs, dating, friends, parties. Just there's never a dull moment. But your work ethic was still top-notch during this whole time? I would go out drinking till two or three o'clock in the morning and I'd go to work and fall asleep on the couch. Probably not the most professional thing. Wake up, brush my teeth, slick back my hair and just get right back at it. We take for granted that the apps that we use can connect and stay connected over the internet. Domain name systems, AKA DNS, makes that possible and are one of the most critical pieces of app infrastructure. Architecting and managing reliable global DNS infrastructure is tough especially when you consider the growing number of deployment options and distributed architectures. For example, app services can run anywhere on any cloud, stack, or platform. And while developers are great for helping develop an app, well, they're usually not DNS infrastructure experts. F5 cloud services have made app delivery and security so simple that anyone can set it up. And not only that, you can set up F5 cloud services fast. When you're on a small team, you need services that enable you to be agile and move fast and with confidence. F5 Cloud Services expertise as a service lets you achieve worry-free DNS infrastructure in minutes. See, F5 delivers DNS tech with SaaS. It's designed for app developers and DevOps teams who want to move incredibly fast. Give your apps the DNS infrastructure they deserve with just a few clicks or API calls so that you and your team and spend more time innovating. F5 has 20 years of experience in the app services and they know what you need in order to implement a great performing app. So if you have an app or you're about to get started on one and you want to help support our show, well, now's a great time to start F5 Cloud Services because F5 is offering a free trial for our listeners. Just visit f5.com forward slash millionaire. That's f5.com forward slash millionaire. In today's world, every company needs more than a simple website. Customers expect personalized, feature-rich experiences. But developing a website that can compete requires time, energy, and of course, the ability to write code. Well, at least it used to, before Bubble. Bubble introduces a new way to build a web application. 
It's a no-code point-and-click programming tool. Build on Bubble and join over 300,000 entrepreneurs like yourself who are now free to focus on growing their business and not struggling to maintain a website. Bubble is the visual programming and cloud platform that empowers founders to build visually and without code. Get started today by signing up for a free account. And whenever you're ready to launch, Bubble is giving all of our listeners a 40% discount for your first three months by using this secret link, bubble.io forward slash millionaire. That's right, 40% off your first three months by going to bubble.io forward slash millionaire. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bubble platform, well, go check out my interview with the founder on episode 170. I think a lot of us can understand that. Also, you didn't really have the college experience necessarily, right? So this was kind of like you having that money as well, being able to come out there. I mean, when your money's single and you're in a vibrant city, I think a lot of us can put ourselves in your shoes for that. Or at least I could. I definitely understand with that. It seemed like everything was going successfully that way as well. So eventually the resentment, did that build up when you wanted to finally get out? Or like, how did you make the transition of wanting to get out in case someone's listening and they feel like they're in a similar situation? Yeah, there started to become static over how money was flowing, where attention span and energy was going. And there'd been some other side projects in there that were doing really well that everyone was involved in. And in some cases, people weren't. So 2011, things are going amazing. We just made Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies for the second year in a row. The money's flowing. Everybody's getting paid well. But now everybody's got an idea about where you should focus. And at this point, I'm five years into this. I feel like I've got a machine and I'm driving it into a destination that I'm pointing towards. But what happened was, is I'd stopped concentrating on growing new clients in the markets where my partners had auctions. So I was not working on the West Coast. I was now working down in Texas and Florida, trying to grow those markets where we didn't have a client base. So I had stopped growing their core businesses, which I had no part of. So early 2011, they put in a new commission structure. So I not only made money in my business, but I made money off of their business when I brought them new business. But the numbers were so small and that I had already saturated the market with advertising with the big brands. It just wasn't churning. So by the end of 2011, we were butting heads on everything, where we were spending our time and energy, what type of clients we were growing with, where I was traveling to, to try to get new business, what type of projects I was working on. And it just came to head. And then Valentine's Day 2012, they gave me a pile of paperwork to look over. We agreed on a number. The number wasn't huge, but I got a lot of the side projects and secondary assets. And six months later, once the lawyers were done with everything, which they drug their feet to make sure that I didn't go out and start a competing company while I was waiting to clear checks and non-competes with them, which was brilliant on their part, we were gone. October 2012, we were completely on our own separate paths. By we, does it mean, was it just you or did you take any employees? Oh no, them four and then me. Right. So yeah, by them four, you mean the other four owners? Yeah, the other four owners. Okay. So it's five owners total that each got 20%? Yeah. Okay. And so from your point of view, I mean, you guess they had more of the money, so you didn't have a choice as far as if the lawyers were taking as long as they wanted to get this done with, right? Uh, yeah, I had no control. If you really think about it, so when the first two partners came together, they started two auctions 50-50. When they started the Philadelphia auction, they brought in a new partner, it was 33, 33, 33. Then when they started the auction up near Boston, it was with a new partner, it was 25, 25, 25, 25. So when I came on and it was 20, 20, 20, it just flowed with the model. That was their model. Bring on a new partner in a new facility, finance them, get them up and running, and you're going to own 
an auto auction takes a lot more money than starting a marketing company. That's kind of how those pieces came together. Were you rich after getting done with that? I wouldn't say rich, but it was, no, it actually been a couple of years earlier. It was the first time that I got a financial statement from the accountant that had a seven figure number on it. And I remember taking my buddy, Danny, we went out to our favorite bar in DC, which is a place called RFD, Regional Food and Drinks. They have like a thousand beers you could choose from. And I thought it would be cool to order the most expensive beer that they had, which was like a $28 bottle of beer. We both took one sip and we're like, let's get something that we actually like. That was my celebration of learning that I was a millionaire. High roller, huh? Yeah, a $28 bottle of beer. And so did you have, you know, visually what you're going to do from there? No. And I think if maybe there's one thing that people could take away from this is I went into deep depression because national charity services had become my identity. I wasn't Roger Bryan every morning when I woke up. I was national charity services. I was the energy that fed from me writing those checks to my clients, the energy that fed from going out and doing the sales and traveling, the energy that fed from going into my office and hearing the hustle and bustle of everything that was going on. And then I'm sitting on a farm in Ohio on a couch, staring at a wall, and I've got nothing to do. All the money in the world, but not a single thing to do. And I sunk into a pretty bad six-month depression where I just was lost. So why did you decide to go back to Ohio if you're having so much fun in DC with your friends and everything? It sounded like you created a new life that you were excited about. I was, but I was really, in fact, I was supposed to be moving to Austin, which is, I was in Austin once a quarter. It's kind of the hub for digital marketing in the United States. It definitely was the up and coming place in 2012. So I wasn't leaving DC to go to Ohio. I was leaving DC to go to Austin. And I had so many friends down there. We were talking about all these ideas of things that we were going to do. I didn't have business friends in DC. I had drinking friends in DC. So my next venture was going to be someplace else. And I was sure it was going to be in Austin with everything that was going on down there. And it may very well, may could have been, but I never made it. From DC, you just decided to go back home? You go to your dad's place or what? Yeah, I was just going to spend a couple of weeks and kind of relax. I mean, I wanted to go like, now I wanted to go back and brag to all of my high school friends and stuff <laughs> like, hey, yeah, let's go out to the bars. Hey, I just sold a company. I'm semi-retired at 2012. I would have been- 32, 33. Yeah. And going to the bars and telling girls that you're retired, like it works. I'm not going to lie. So I was having fun with that. And I just was playing with it for a little bit. I had no idea that I was going to meet my wife. In fact, I signed up for a service called It's Just Lunch. And I told them, I'm like, I might want to go on some dates here, but I'm actually moving to Austin. Can this transfer? And we were working on the details of that. And my wife today was my second date through that organization. And we've been inseparable since. It's Just Lunch. I've never heard of it. We take dating offline. Yeah. If you travel a lot, they're actually in the book, the magazines. Like I used to fly US Airways, which is now American. They're actually in the magazine. So I saw it in the magazine. It's like professionals only. There's no online stuff. You don't even see a picture of the person before you meet them. They just actually match you on your qualities. It's an actual dating service, not a, here's a website, answer a bunch of questions and our algorithm is going to hope that you can get matched, which by the way, you can hack. And we just hit it off. The craziest thing is I'm not like, love at first sight. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. When we <laughs> sat down with each other, we realized within 10 minutes that we'd lived five blocks from each other in Washington, D.C. for three years. She had gone to the grocery store in my building and I had gone to the gym in her building. We hung out at all of the same bars, but we never met. She had moved back to Ohio six months before me to buy a company. She was from this area. We lived about an hour apart, even though we were both in Ohio. But once we've learned that, and then when she went to Kent State, 
I was partying at the bars at Kent State. When she went to American University, I bought a condo by American University. We had gone like 10 years and it seemed like I was almost chasing her even though I'd never met her. Yeah, you were stalking her. You just didn't- Yeah, I was stalking her, just didn't know who she was. That's interesting with that service too. That's cool that y'all met there. But you said you were depressed, so I guess that got you out of your funk, obviously, it sounded like. Was this the turning point for you, I guess, to get happy again in Ohio? A little bit, because my wife will joke about it now, but for the first, so you figure as two months into, like about three months, in, so I would have met her right at the beginning of May, and I had given, walked away in February, so it was about, about halfway through. The first time she came to my place, I owned no furniture. I had just rented a condo. I had a bed but I didn't own a chair. I didn't own a couch. Wasn't even thinking in my head that I wanted those things. I would just go sit at my desk, screw around. I wrote a couple books and then I would sleep or I would go out to the bars with people, get drunk enough to come home and go to sleep. And for the first couple months when she'd come over, it was kind of like, it wasn't even registering with me that I was in such a deep depression. It's not like I sat down and said, I'm depressed. It's kind of like when you're on the outside of it, looking back, you're like, fuck man. I wish I would have understood what I was going through. I had the same problem when I quit drinking. It was hard. I read a lot of Seth Godin and I credit him, his book, The Dip, of helping me understand what I was going through. And a couple months later, pulling out of it, buying some furniture and some kitchen utensils so it wasn't all takeout. What did the dip say? I'm curious. Every human being goes through dips, whether it's from a relationship, it's the loss of a loved one, which can also be relationships where like your parents die, it's going to happen. Entrepreneurs, especially. We have huge successes followed by huge failures, sometimes within the same week. The emotional roller coaster that you go on is well documented. The problem is a lot of people sit back and internalize and think that this is unique to them, which makes it even worse. So Seth Godin's book, The Dip, it's very short. It's a small book. It really walks you through that journey in an acknowledgement of what's going on so that you can have this, this self-realization that you're not unique. This isn't a big deal. It's a dip. Because you started high, you went low, but you're going to be high again. And I'm not talking about drugs in high school, but you do have the opportunity to go out there and find something that's going to fulfill you. The next relationship, the next business, that next deal. I get excited talking about that because it's true even today with all of the craziness in the world, there's so much opportunity out there. So if your business today, and I'm reading this all over line and we're not going to dive into the reasoning why, but People that own agencies are posting into a lot of the groups that I'm parts of and saying, hey, every one of my clients has stopped running their advertising, so I've just gone to $0 in income today, and I don't know what you have to do. Well, you're going through the dip. Get Seth Godin's book, The Dip, and then look at where the opportunities are. All of this pain is temporary, and on the other side of this are even bigger and better opportunities as long as you don't get stuck in your own head and go, woe is me. Really just get your mindset right, and you will break through all of this. So up to this point, even though you had been successful in that business and I guess like getting out, it didn't seem like you had those mentors or maybe business colleagues or who owned other businesses where maybe you could realize that. Does that sound about right? It did. In fact, I did end up with a mentor around that time who turned out to be the worst decision that I had. Well, let's hear it. Right around 2011, I got involved with a coaching organization because I knew that I was having problems with my partners and didn't know how to solve them. I was always going to a lot of marketing events and was actually speaking at a lot of marketing events. So I went to an event in Texas. I don't remember exactly what it was a smaller city for an event, but San Antonio, San Antonio, that's it. You're right. And this gentleman, before I say his name is an absolute genius, 
very good friend to this day. Austin Peake. Austin Peake, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. But Perry Belcher, the founder of Digital Marketer with Ryan Geis. So just drinking buddies from events. He's gone on to $100 million things. He had an event that I went to and they had this guy there. And it's kind of an unspoken truth in this industry now, not to say his name and just call him him. But his name is <laughs> JT Fox. And he was running a coaching organization. So I got involved as a student, got a coach to kind of walk me through these business problems that I was having. Now that coach wasn't bad, but what had happened was I was a pretty good speaker and I just sold a company. So I had a story. So this JT guy started putting me on stage. People started listening and then they wanted coaching from me. So all of a sudden I had gone from nothing to now I was doing six figures a year in coaching revenue, sitting at home, playing on my computer, talking to people. And that started to go well. And then JT's like, you know what? Do you want to do a speaking tour? So I'm going to put you on the road for 90 days. I'm going to give you 30% of everything that we sell. Let's create a new program for people that teaches them how to do their marketing. It turned out to be marketing for smart people because I talk very technical and very fast when I'm on stage. So it resonates with about 20% of my audience. The other 80% get zoned out. I've never been able to fix that problem. In 90 days, we did about $700,000 in sales. I was supposed to get 30% of that. And I got none of it. None of the money ever came in. He kept it all. But that's not even the problem though. The problem was that he had a way of interacting with people that I picked up that took me years to get rid of. I might still be doing it. A lot of people admit that over the last five years, like friends and people that I could have been doing business with, and I'm not talking about clients, but like partners and things, I was really hard to deal with. I had this arrogant attitude that I developed from him that if you're wrong and I'm right, you need to come to my side the lack of understanding or empathy of people's journeys and things like that. And JT Fox now is under investigation by the IRS. He's being sued by multiple people for sexual harassment, for fraud. So he unraveled the way that he was supposed to. And anyone that's listening to this that hears that name probably gets shivers up their spine because if you've ever interacted with them, you either feel dirty or you lost money. But that took about 18 years of my life and didn't really pay off. Yeah. I'm just looking at pictures and I don't even need to press play on a video. <laughs> To feel that I need to go take another shower. I think it helped me get back out there, start to develop things. If I come back to like what we started talking about, is kind of like that one thing. Every time I've ever deviated from my one skill set, things really haven't worked for one reason or another. If I open up an auto auction, the software gets pulled and it fails. If I try to become a speaker or a coach, I end up partnering with the wrong person. Now, I don't want it to sound like I'm blaming other people. I made the conscious decisions to do those things. I did create proactive plans to fix problems, but I've never had those problems when I do SEO for people. They don't exist. We have a system. It works. People pay us money. They make more money than they pay us. They're happy. Clients stay with me four years, seven years. I work with multi-billion dollar companies. I work with smaller companies and it just works. I'm not stressed out. I'm not worried about where my next paycheck's coming from. So I just want to kind of focus it back on what I wanted to talk about today because my story is more of an example of what not to do than the successful journey of an entrepreneur. Right. Now I'm feeling it. Then why don't we go ahead and get to the last part of your story when you're saying it was slightly different. I mean, when you're talking about infusion, because I think that's the last part of your story for us to talk about. Yeah. So in the SEO space, there's two types of people that do this. There are the data-driven people, and then there's the artful people. And the artful people is a polite way for saying the people that try to go online, find the next hack, or just keep throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that it works. Some of them succeed. Many of them do not. The data-driven side, I'm not going to say a percentage of what who is and who isn't, but the data-driven side is that it's a science. There's 10 key metrics that you need to track. 
And based on how those metrics are moving, it tells you exactly what you need to do. I developed that mentality in about 2008, and I had quantified it into an algorithm about 2010. And that's how we ran our campaigns. And that's why our websites are still ranking and driving tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the nonprofit space from a traffic perspective, millions of dollars in revenue every year. After the Microsoft deal, doing sales and marketing automation training, I started to see that they were going down the same path. They were looking at, okay, what is the data telling us? How can we leverage the data? So I'm like, let me take three years of research from Microsoft. And if anybody wants, there's a book on Amazon called Data-Driven Marketing by Roger Bryan. It's the case study of what we did with Microsoft. Our last year with them, we generated $56 million in SQL sales qualified leads for them. I took everything that we had learned and their view of data, and I combined it with my algorithm. And we turned it into a portal that we used internally to kind of self-optimize our campaigns. What it did is it took all the guesswork out of SEO. Every day, our team would log into a campaign, or every week, they'd log into a campaign and would tell them all of their daily activities. It updated once a week. And it worked great. The results were there. So I had the brilliant idea. I haven't spent much money on this. It works internally. We've got a great service business again. Why not turn this into a software platform? which I had no effing idea how to do. And I made every mistake you can possibly make with building a software platform. I built it on the wrong platform using the wrong developers. Then I hired the wrong developers to rebuild it on the same platform. Then I hired the wrong developers to rebuild it on a new platform. Every time we scaled in capacity, I had to rebuild the entire thing from scratch because I never did it right. I never went out and found someone that had done it before to guide me with that. And it just became a money pit. I was still profiting a little bit, but every single penny that was coming into the company was now going into building this platform. And I had exhausted all of the money I had left over from selling my shares in my company. And towards the end, we had gone into the enterprise space. We had a huge client, which had five hospitals and 23 urgent cares running on our tool. Sorry, we were doing the marketing for five hospitals. That organization also added 23 urgent cares into our tool and they were doing it and it was working. But this was a $7 billion healthcare organization who had a lot of demands for us expanding the capabilities of our tool from a reporting perspective and integrations perspective. And I conceded and I started chasing all of those. So it got even more expensive, more expensive, and then had to rebuild the infrastructure again. By the time it was all said and done, in revenue for my company over a four-year period had been put into that. And I had put $260,000 of my own money into the platform that I ended up shutting down. But you said you made $890,000 in revenue and you put $260,000 in, so you still didn't make profit, but you're saying- Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I took $890,000 out of my service revenue and put it into the software. Okay. And then I put $260,000 of my own cash into the software. Right. So that's what you're saying earlier. You alluded to putting over a million dollars in and then basically making no money off of it? No. When it was all said and done, all of that money was gone. At one point, we had 55 agencies running on it and a whole slew of individual companies. And then they just started to trickle off because the tool was constantly not working. That's why we kept rebuilding it, trying to catch up to the amount of bandwidth that we were using from both a client perspective and a data perspective. I mean, we had 56,000 tasks in our tool that every week ran against a single campaign. You get 400 campaigns running in there with 56,000 tasks and you do the math and the amount of data that we were trying to consume was insurmountable for the platform that we built it in. What platform did you build it in? The very first time we built it in WordPress, 
for the love of God, don't ever build a software platform in that. And everyone knows that. But again, 2013, 2014, 2015, then we rebuilt it in Cake with an Angular front end. And it seemed to work a little bit better. But the amount of data that we were processing and the connections just didn't work. And we were about to rebuild it again. I had a quote for $90,000 last summer to rebuild it again. And they're like, this is going to be the time. And then I'm like, fuck no. I've got to acknowledge that this is just not going to work. I have no money to market. I have no money to sell. I'm spending my entire day trying to work through bugs and I'm spending all of my money. It's got to stop. Because it's a subtle difference. Again, I mean, maybe it's not too super subtle, but it's still like within the SEO space. But again, you were making software for these other companies or agencies to use. And it wasn't the same thing as you going out and actually doing the SEO work and having this be your internal tool you're using. Because internally, it sounded like it was fine because maybe one person's using it or running it at a time versus having multiple businesses or multiple clients running it on a server online. Is that the difference? Yeah, no, you're spot on. So I acknowledge that my skill is an SEO, stick to SEO, but I convinced myself that software was okay because it was still an SEO. Right, exactly. Because you're still within that niche to an extent, but you're kind of going to a side where you're doing the software, not the actual SEO for the company. Exactly. I was wrong, but that's what I told myself. A lot of us can make that mistake though. To me, it seems like it would make sense. It's just like, if you would have had the back end working well, then maybe you would have kept going down this route. Maybe it would have worked out perfectly. Potentially, there was one core mistake that I made. And about two years into this, I stopped marketing. I'd stopped growing it. And I notice now with like when we use a CRM, each of our clients have different CRMs and we've got to get their leads in there. We've got to get their forms working because they're part of our SEO backend to make sure that the lead flow is correct. The most technology tools out there don't work as promised. They've oh, no. <laughs> all got problems. I never acknowledged that in my own business and allowed myself to sell a product that was less than perfect. I convinced myself that this next thing that I was going to do is going to fix all of these problems and then I'll start selling it. And that's really the bad decision that was made. Had I been selling this the entire time and trying to keep relationships with paying customers, it might've worked out different, but I stopped selling. I let one client be like my backbone and just let everybody else kind of go by the wayside and was not putting new clients in. That is the core mistake that I made in this. And so now we fast forward kind of today, you stopped doing that and reverted back to what you were doing, which is kind of your own agency again. Yeah. If you go all the way back to 2001, really my bread and butter has been SEO work. I say I'm an SEO consultant because a lot of the clients that we work with have us on retainer to really fix their problems and tell them what to do, which is kind of a unique scenario. We look at the data and we use our tools in order to examine the data and give them their strategies. They don't have access to a tool. They want the data. They've got their own content teams. They've got their own developers. One of our largest clients now has, it's an app for the physical therapy world. So it's kind of like the Uber of physical therapy. And they've got an amazing team on their end of content writers, of developers, both technical and front end. Every week we go in, tell them everything that needs to be done. They change their things. We do a little bit of the offsite for them and going like gamebusters. It's kind of a great spot to be able to work with these large enterprise organizations where they might not want to outsource their entire campaign. They could, if they wanted to, just be more expensive so they can get an economical solution to their problem and let them leverage their own infrastructure while still maintaining results. Yeah, it makes sense because it's kind of different mindsets. If you're like the analytical guy coming in there telling all this versus if they have an internal content team, I mean, 
all of us in all of our businesses have to outsource certain parts. So those are the clients that you work with. Sounds like they have a decent amount of revenue, they have internal teams, but you're just helping them look at it mathematically. It sounds like with the SEO strategies. Yeah, mathematically is a good word. Scientifically, data-driven, it works well for everyone. So we're not the team that's going to take on a dog care shelter or whatever like that for $500 a month. We're going to be working with organizations. Typically, they're going to have anywhere from five to 500 locations that we're going to work on all at the same time to really fit into our bread and butter about what we do well. And I'll be honest, there's less competition in that space too. Doing the single location mom and pop business, there's 10,000 people out there in the United States that are had, I'm doing air quotes that have agencies, even though they might be a solopreneur, which nothing against them, that could probably do a decent job that are going to cost a third of what we cost. So that's why those people go through. We don't even try to dive into that market because we can't compete on price. For the future, are you going to stick with this model? Yeah. So I've taken all of the lessons of what we've learned. And I say we, because my wife owns two companies, especially in times like these. Both of us were working till 10 o'clock last night, trying to keep everything afloat. When we, as a team, talk about this, we did start an e-commerce business inside of her current company. So she's in the septic industry. We sell septic products online. Again, a low competition, high barrier to entry uh, product line, because you have to be a distributor of most of these products. Not just everybody can buy them in bulk and sell them online. And she bought a 25-year-old company that had a lot of those distributorships. But we sat down and really looked at how are we going to approach this? What are we good at? What are we not good at? I'm an owner in the e-commerce business, but I'm not a leader. There's an e-commerce manager that runs the business. There's a marketing manager that runs the marketing. On the back end, I do some SEO and I consult with the team when they need things. So I'm sticking to my one thing and allowing other people to do other things that will allow you to be successful. And I had to pick up a book because a lot of what I talk about, the one thing, there's a book called The One Thing that is one of my favorite books of all times. And it always talks about if you chase two rabbits, you will never catch one. It's like a Russian proverb that's right at the beginning of the book. And it's so filled with notes and stickies. I know when I was traveling a couple of weeks ago, I was reading this in the airport and you see people with eyes because there's dollar bills stuck all over the place in it. There's a $5 bill on the important pages. There's sticky notes with everything. It's like my Bible. And I know you said you wanted to kind of emphasize that. Now that I'm Googling it, I've seen the cover for sure. I've never read it in one thing, but that's a good kind of closing point again, is that we've learned from you, even if you can get that focus and focus on one thing, I think that's the one thing you wanted to emphasize in our interview here. Yeah. The hardest part about saying that is feeling like I lived a contradiction for most of my life, but it's through the successes that you see what works and it's through the failures that you see what doesn't work. And by all means, go out and experiment and learn on your own because it's hard enough in a single lifetime to become a master of one skill. Trying to become a master of many skills usually means you struggle the majority of your lives. The problem is there's people like Elon Musk, who's a once in a hundred year type of entrepreneur that can do all of these things at an extremely high level and have like what, $4 billion companies. The rest of us are not going to do that. And the sooner that we realize it, I had to get into my 40s before it was kind of like, I've been thinking this the entire time, but it's a proven fact now when you look at the review of my life that this is the way to approach things. Find that one thing and be so all in on it from an education perspective, an implementation perspective, and a practicing perspective that no one can compete with you and that you don't have to worry about the ups and downs or the dips in life so much because you know you've got that skill set as long as that skill set is there and it's in demand, which hopefully search engine optimization will be till the robots take over and we're all serving them, you'll be fine. 
Well, thank you, Roger, for coming on and sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, they can just go to rcbryan, B-R-Y-A-N.com. They can message us through there. They can take advantage of some of the offers that are on there, or they can email me, roger at infusion, E-N-F-U-S-E-N.com. Thanks for again for coming on and sharing your story here. No, I appreciate it. All right, cool. So I'll end it there. Man, it's hard because I and the one thing that I was worried about in doing this too is to be coming on and trying to preach this uh, one thing and then telling my story and realizing that my entire life I've done anything but follow that. Yeah, but I'll say the one, well, the one thing again here <laughs> is that when, well, when you look at it, it seems like you had your success when you focus on the one thing, right? I think everyone's going to do kind of what you did, but I think if everyone looks back at their life or whatever, when they like, okay, maybe they go try these other things, but when they come back to the, you know, the mean or the middle and focus on the thing that was working, it helps reemphasize to keep doing that. I think all of us are eventually going to get pulled some way to the left or to the right doing something else. But if those aren't working, then come back to the thing that was working. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can position that as the point of all this, bravo. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. And that's, I'll, I'll just keep this back end of our conversation on so people can actually hear that. And again, reemphasize that even though you're kind of jumping around, I mean, in each business, like you were looking back at it, I mean, the SEO was the one thing that kind of helped you bring it back to making money or making each business successful. So absolutely. Appreciate you having me. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Bye. There's another website called familiar with that, Nick? You know about that? Yeah, no? but they are but they're expensive. expensive. Right, yeah. yeah. But I think they'll still be cheaper than 150K for an app, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's for sure. Am I, getting, am I getting bent over here? Is that what you're trying to tell me? You're saying you're being really stupid. Okay, so what's hey, Well, you, you don't have a video call on, so we can't tell if you're getting bent over. <laughs> <laughs>